Hey, Scott, how's it going? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, I've, I've been a fan of your stuff for years, but I was trying to figure out if we've ever met. Um, I knew Justin and I know Kelly Vallejos from Anti-War, but I'm, I'm not sure we ever have met. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't spend much time, uh, too much time traveling around. I guess after the last book came out, I did a, a little bit of a speaking tour there, but uh, I haven't done a lot of the big events and those kinds of things too much. Starting to now more and more, I guess. Yeah. And uh, so let's let's start with, uh, I wanted to to get into this and assume that people don't know a lot about your work. And, and I wanted to speak specifically to, um, you know, conservatives and, and people that may have gotten into the movement as neocons and, and progressives that are now into this sort of humanitarian nation building stuff. And I want to, so I want to take it down to a level where people that would have sort of an instinctual, we have to do something attitude towards foreign policy um, can kind of get where us libertarian non-interventionists are coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely want to talk about your new book, but but maybe we could just talk a little bit about about your work generally and and what you do on the Scott Horton show and what you do at antiwar.com and give give people a general overview of that stuff first. Yeah, well, you know, at antiwar.com, our uh, ethic has always been that even though we're libertarians at the core that run the thing, that we are a single issue and the issue isn't libertarianism. The issue is non-interventionism. And so we're happy to feature the very best of the left and right and whoever you got, as long as you know their arguments are sound in favor of non-intervention. And there's always a lot of great stuff, uh, you know, along those lines. But you know, at the same time, I think out in the world, the biggest problem in American politics is partisanship. is It's just the mind killer. And it's <laughs> what's funny is, as a libertarian, to me, is I'm against both sides so much that I totally empathize with both sides for hating the other side more. Like, listen, I got to be a right winger because I sure as hell ain't a left winger. Like, I understand that, dude. You know what I mean? That's perfectly reasonable response to the left and vice versa, too. I'm clearly not one of them. I must be over here. And those guys are definitely worse. So I guess I'll have to settle for these guys to protect me from those guys. And that's just how it works. But then you know, it's a feedback loop kind of thing. And the more you're on the team, the the deeper your identification with the team gets. And then any criticism of anything that your side does is taken as a criticism from the other side that must be defended and heels dig in and knees jerk and everybody gets mad. So my thing is, I'm a libertarian. I don't give a damn about the Republicans and the Democrats at all. And I'm against them all, but I'm fair to everybody. I don't lie. I don't twist. I don't make up silly nicknames for everybody to ridicule them or whatever, right? I just tell you what Hillary Clinton did that I disapprove of and John McCain too, usually the same thing, right? Um, and then, you know, as I learned this driving a cab long ago, uh, Michael Bolden from the 10th Amendment Center named it the Scott Horton rule is as a libertarian to, to explain libertarianism to liberals and conservatives or leftists and rightists of whatever description, you attack the left from the left and the right from the right because we have some, well, I put it this way, anything that the leftists are good on, we're even better. And anything that the right-wingers are good on, we're even better. It's not that we're really to the right or the left of them. It's just, 
we've really thought all of this stuff through. So like a great left wing issue would be ending the war on drugs. Well, we absolutely agree with that. But we're like the nth degree crystallization of the perfection of that argument about the war on drugs. But if you want to attack the left from the left, what you do is you hold hands all the way on the drug war argument and then you change the subject to guns. And you say, now, isn't it true that it's poor and minorities who end up doing prison time just for possession of a gun when they weren't allowed to? Who everybody in, in the whole neighborhood has a felony. So now none of them are allowed to own a gun. Now anybody with a gun has to go to the pen. And, you know, for simple possession. And isn't it the case that making it illegal just means that criminals are in charge of distributing the guns, the most dangerous ones of all? And don't all our same arguments about the war on drugs apply to the war on guns? And doesn't it just not make sense to have a war on guns run by a government that you hate and fear, right? And cops who you say are all Klansmen. Like, like let's not do this. It, you thought that was a left-wing issue, but it wasn't. If you really, a real leftist is against gun control, right? And that way, so I'm not asking you to change your identity. I'm not asking you to become a libertarian. I'm not asking you to become a right wing, you know, duck hunting gun nut. I'm just saying it's perfectly left wing to oppose gun control if you're left wing and smart. And then the same thing for a right winger. If you're a good right winger, then you value the constitution and capitalism, limited government, property rights, which all require requires sound money. If you're a real good right winger, you want to help us abolish the IRS, repeal the 16th Amendment, never have income taxation again. Well, I'm sorry, Charlie, you can't have a limited republic and a world empire at the same time. You're going to have to choose. And if you want a limited republic for the United States of America, you're just going to have to let Iraq go and Israel, too, for that matter. And because you can't have it both ways. And so what's more important to you? And by the way, the more the war state distorts our economic system and necessitates our funny money and the boom and bust cycle we suffer every 10 or 12 years when the economy collapses, the more the left half of American society, oh, from your point of view, stage left, the more the left half of society moves toward Bernie Sanders and Karl Marx, right? And get further and further radicalized against what they call capitalism when it's actually the distortions of our government in all of the means of production and, you know, right down to the very money itself, uh, you know, the dollars we use are, uh, themselves. So that's my thing. And, you know, like when we're talking about the wars, if you lean a little bit right, then just pretend along with me. When I say Ronald Reagan, just pretend I said Jimmy Carter did 12 years. What difference does it make? And then after Carter came Bill Clinton. And then after Bill Clinton came Hillary and Barack, and it was all Democrats this whole time. That way I don't have to hurt your feelings because you remember liking Ronald Reagan with your dad back a long time ago or something, okay, fine. Forget your feelings. It was all Democrats who did all the terrible things that I'm gonna say here in a minute, right? And then if you lean a little bit left, no, it was all the Republicans. You know what, forget Jimmy Carter starting all this stuff. It was Ronald Reagan, mean old Ronald Reagan, him and the Bushes, and then you know what, Bush did eight years and then his son did 12, and then Trump, and it was all Republicans all along who did these horrible things. So now you don't have to be upset that I'm criticizing a president that you had some emotional connection to. I'm not criticizing America, the country, or the 300 million Americans who are basically the captives and victims of these people, just the same as the Iraqis are, right? It's just, you know what? The Clintons made bad decisions sometimes. Who could argue with that? You know, that's yeah. all it is we're yeah. talking about here. So I was listening to uh, the pod you just did with Dave Smith, and uh, he he made a point. Uh, he was defending uh, Nancy Pelosi for having mm -hmm. voted voted against the Iraq War, 
And it struck me that in her case, I suspect that that was a purely partisan position and it wasn't a moral position or a philosophical position. Uh, she was voting against a Republican administration. And I, I was thinking about, and I'm not specifically picking on her because I think I think foreign policy is largely a partisan thing that ends up producing the same thing regardless of who sits in the White House. Uh, but I'm thinking of something that, that Thomas Massey likes to say, the congressman from Kentucky. He's a friend of the show and kind of a libertarian Republican, liberty Republican, whatever you want to call him. And, and he likes to say, when, when he's explaining why he can work with Tulsi Gabbard and why he can work with uh, uh, Ro Khanna and other anti-war Democrats, he's like, Matt, I'm not a partisan. I'm an ideologue, and I can find common right. ground with Bernie Sanders on this one question of, of interventionism. I can find lots of ground with someone like Tulsi Gabbard, who's not a typical um, left progressive. She's more complex than that. And, mm -hmm. and it struck me that this fight, um, not just on one issue, like you're describing on all of these issues, is probably between people that that are working from a set of principles, no matter how um, you know, they, they might not be all the right principles from our perspective versus those that just view this as a partisan war where uh, defeating the other side, uh, regardless of what your side is doing, is the end goal. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, in other words, there's the people who are in it for themselves, and then there's the rest of society. We're trying to save our society from these people who are completely destroying it, running it in the ground. And you're completely right, by the way, about Nancy Pelosi, that in 2002, the Democrats were in the minority in the House, so it was perfectly safe for her to vote against the thing and and grandstand about it. Meanwhile, the Democrats were in the majority in the Senate and led by Joe Biden and John Kerry and Hillary Clinton. They all voted for it and caused the war. And by the way, they could have stopped it. I mean, you play the counterfactual right there instead of being George W. Bush's handmaiden, if Joe Biden had had any moral courage at all as the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee to say, this is crazy, there's no way we're doing this. You're wrong and this isn't true and that's not true and here's my experts to debunk yours. As I say in the new book, all you had to do was call General Zinni, the previous commander of Central Command, to come in and say, none of this is true. I don't have a nuclear, oh yeah, no, they have a Manhattan Project in Iraq, we just don't know where it is. Yeah, okay. That's all he needed to do. And instead he, you know, helped George Bush lie us into the whole thing. But uh, yeah, that's right. And then, you know, both sides, I saw a great meme the other day that was the ring of power from the Lord of the Rings, that it's each party when they're out of power, destroy the ring, destroy it. And the other party, no. And then they switch back and forth, back and forth. And things only get worse and worse and worse. And there's never, you know, more libertarian a Republican than when they don't have any power. Boy, they'll tell you how anti-government they are and how pro-freedom they are and how pro-free market they are. And something's got to be done about this deficit, man. I'll tell you what, until the moment they have the power in their hands and then they do everything they accuse the Democrats of doing and more. I mean, and it's no secret to it. It's been libertarian economists have documented this for years that the Republicans always vastly increase spending in the deficit far more than the Democrats dare to, and which has held true this whole century long. Yeah. You know? Certainly the last, uh, the, the first two years of the Trump administration, before all of these trillion dollar emergencies was the most expansive spending that I think I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah. And yeah. I think Obama beat Bush, but only after Bush had left Clinton in the dust. 
And then Obama came in and did the big, you know, $6 trillion stimulus thing, you know, at the start of the crash there. Um, but then after that, it was, I think, less and less. They still spent a trillion dollars a year on the military, still $4 trillion a year instead of six or whatever, but still. Yeah. Yeah, it's totally out of control. So, so let's, um, uh, a previous book. So your new book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I want to spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, but a previous book was a collection of your interviews with Ron Paul mm -hmm. called The Great Ron Paul. And it goes back to 2004. Was was he kind of your gateway into this view or were you already a libertarian when you met him? Um, I was already a libertarian um, by the time that I learned about Ron Paul. My big Ron Paul moment was 10 years before everybody else's with the big, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani moment in the spring of 2007. Mine was in 1997. And I already knew about Harry Brown and had voted Harry Brown for president in 96. And, uh, you know, I was, I was more interested in like new world order conspiracy theory type stuff at the time, but I wasn't a right winger, like all the Birchers and those and the militia guys and whatever, but I was more interested in that kind of stuff. And the libertarian movement didn't seem to talk about that kind of thing very much. So I wasn't as interested in that, but I was always a libertarian and not, you know, conservative or anything like that. Um, but then I saw, uh, it's so funny. Uh, the first time I saw Ron Paul, I'll never forget is, you know, I'm, I'm almost certain it was the middle of the night C-SPAN reruns and it's Ron Paul speaking to an empty house of representatives and it's just him and the temporary speaker of the house. And he's saying, Mr. Speaker, I have here in my hands, these documents that I got, they're published by the British press today. And this shows the final evidence that George Bush, and this is 97, so George Bush meant senior, previous, right? That George Bush was selling weapons to Saddam Hussein right up into the invasion of Iraq, uh, right up until the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. And you know what? I just think this goes to show that we should not be doing this kind of thing. Now, I'm a Texan, and I know that George Bush is not really a Texan, but nominally he is, and he's a and senior we're talking about here. He's a huge force in the Republican Party in Texas at that time, of course, and all the powerful Houston oil men and corporate, you know, chieftains and all these things. This is the whole crew. And then so I'm watching this thing. I look at the bottom of the screen. It says R, Texas. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. A Republican from Texas is accusing Bush Sr. of selling weapons to Saddam Hussein up until the eve of the invasion of Kuwait. Like, that's pretty bad. And that's pretty courageous of him. And then. Um, so, and then of course he's such a wonderful guy. He's so good on everything too, that, um, you know, I remember, and it's because of the time and place. That's how I know, you know, how good I was on this stuff back then. I remember drive, it, it had to have been 1997 cause I drive my Roy's taxi. They wouldn't let me drive for yellow cause I wasn't 21 yet. So I'm driving for Roy's taxi and, um, telling people in my cab that like, no, see the housing thing is a big bubble. It's all because of this money and all, you know, fake funny. Now, of course, I'm like 10 years ahead of the curve. So what I should have been telling everybody was get in on the bubble now instead of it's a big bubble, stay out of it. What the hell did I know? But I knew it was a big bubble because of Ron Paul. And I knew that after the crash happened in 99 and 2000 with the dot coms and the NASDAQ and all of that, that um, it was him that I was parroting, telling people in my cab that, um, you know, don't worry, you know, or don't make the mistake of thinking that real estate is fine. It's a bubble too. It's just that one hasn't popped yet. 
and all this stuff. And I've learned from him. And then, of course, on foreign policy, every time the guy opened his mouth from 1997 through 1999, if he ever talked about the Middle East in any context, I mean, nine out of 10 times at least, he would say this policy makes us more vulnerable to terrorist attacks in the United States as we provoke enemies by doing what we're doing, occupying bases in Saudi to bomb Iraq. Mr. Speaker, if the Saudis are warning us this week that we're driving their crazies crazy, maybe we ought to get the hell out of there before something bad happens, don't you think? That's Ron Paul, 1997, 1998, 1999, when Bill Clinton was impeached. He goes, well, of course, I'm voting for the impeachment, but what I'm really mad is what he's doing right now with the uh, Operation Desert Fox bombing campaign, December 98, which Clinton began, I love this, the day after the Judiciary Committee had voted the articles of impeachment for the full House to begin debating, Bill Clinton started a war against a little mini, you know, two week air raid campaign against Iraq that he named after Erwin Rommel, for God's sake. Like, what in the world? How did that? Anyway, um, and Ron Paul's railing at the C SPAN camera. I want him impeached for this. He doesn't have the right to bomb Iraq. Only Congress can, can declare war against a sovereign nation. And he's going to cause increased terrorism against the United States of America. So all he was was right, you know, and all I had to do was pay attention to the obviously the sharpest guy on the hill by far. You know, not just that I agree with in libertarian terms, but who has his premises correct about what's going on around here and what are the likely consequences in a way that nobody else would. And there were other rogues in the Congress, right? Jim Traficant or Dennis Kucinich or whatever. None of them had their act together like Ron Paul when it came to what we're really doing and what it really means and the risks we're really taking all through in the lead up to September 11th, no question. So you're you're a Ron Paul kid before it was cool. Um, Absolutely. And I, I tried, I, before this conversation, I was trying to dig up some, some, I'm sure I'd be embarrassed by them today, but I, I wrote a bunch of pieces in 90, whatever it was, the invasion of Kuwait. Um, uh -huh. I, was, I was probably the only, and I, at the time I had just moved from the, I air my dirty laundry here. I just moved from the Republican national committee to the U S chamber of commerce. And so I was, I was writing these things without affiliation and I couldn't, there really wasn't a place to publish anti-war stuff that I could find at the time, but it was all of my intellectual allies were sort of hippie anti-war protesters. And I went to the protests and, you know, there was, there was Pat Buchanan, but I didn't really know that crowd. Um, and Ron Paul was the only guy back then, but eventually he made skepticism of, of nation building and all that stuff, um, more mainstream, but still, still well within the minority in, in both political parties. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, you know, there's a New York Times article about uh, Robert Malley. He's the new, you know, former Bill Clintonite who uh, was worked for Obama and then is now Joe Biden's special envoy to Iran. And the article in the New York Times, you got to look, it's like out of the mouths of babes kind of thing. They're so cynical. They don't even realize how bad they sound to us sometimes kind of thing. And they say, well, you know, Malley, they quote him saying, God, you know, we've gone here and here and here. We caused all this chaos. We tried it this way. We tried it this way. We tried it this way. It didn't work. I'm not really sure this is the right thing. I don't know. And then they, from there, they say, 
um, you know, talk like that more and more really reflects the attitude of the American people, especially after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were total failures and smaller interventions like Somalia and Libya. I'm like, hey, this is pretty good for the New York Times. Somalia and Libya also really didn't work out either. But it's that kind of talk that really earns Mali enemies in Washington, D.C. Oh, they hate it. For this guy to admit that the last 20 years has been a disaster at their hands and the knives are out for him, not because he's wrong, but because they're wrong. You know, simple as that. Yeah, and they so, can't, can't, have, can't have anyone sort of admit that because then yeah. there, were, there would potentially be a reckoning, which is bipartisan. Uh, both right. teams, as you so you document this and and let, let's pivot to the book. And I want to start with with a question. And this this is a sort of a libertarian thing. It strikes me that any time the political class declares a war on something, they create more of it. So we've mm -hmm. declared a war on terrorism and and we can we can get into blowback and all that. We got we got more terrorism. We got more destability and all that stuff. The war mm -hmm. on drugs creates more and more dangerous drugs and more death by drugs. Um, the war on opioids did the same thing. The war on poverty has create, created this huge poverty industrial complex, but it's not at all clear that it's helped anyone rise out of poverty. Um, explain, like, is sort of a public choice reason why this happens. Mm -hmm. why, why is every war um, leading to another war? And why, why, why do anti-war presidents like Barack Obama end up just expanding the war state? Yeah, no, so that's a great way to frame it. And I think that that's the correct context is that the military is not the exception to the rule. The military also is a government program. In fact, it's the biggest government program. And so just like the DEA or just like the Department of you know, Housing and Urban Development or whatever you know, great society uh, type agencies, they have a need to continue to exist. The last thing they wanna do is put themselves out of business by solving a problem. They're in business. And in fact, their incentive is to, you know, if the problem is solved, even without them, then they'll come up with a new reason for the same thing they're already doing. And especially like in terms of military bases around the world. Well, the USSR is gone. So we don't need our secret outpost in Austria anymore, do we? Sure we do, because you know what? There could be a pipeline might come through here the wrong direction, or somebody might try to sell some drugs or Somebody's going to come up with a reason why we got to keep whatever, whichever secret base or open base, wherever it's hidden. And uh, the military themselves, they call it a self-licking ice cream cone. The whole Pentagon, the whole project is a self-licking ice cream cone, which means a program in search of a reason to exist. And just like with the New York Times right there, sort of out of the mouths of babes thing, when they don't realize how corrupt this is because it's just the system. It's how it is. This is the American way that They'll admit, and I quote in the book, where they say, well, you know, after the big drawdowns from Iraq and Afghanistan, we're looking for things to do. So we're going to Africa because we got to find ways to stay globally engaged, which is all just another way of saying we don't want to have to get jobs. There's no enemies out here to defend the American people from. Their lives and liberty are not in danger. So we can climb down off the wall. We can, you know, close down our fire base and come home and spend this money on productive uses. Nah. You know, what uh, lieutenant colonel who wants to be a Fulberg colonel is going to go along with a program like that? 
You know, what two-star general who wants three is going to go along with a program like that? And what incentive does a congressman have or a think tanker have or an arms dealer have or a media anchor head have to, you know, come down on the good side of any of this? All of their incentives are to keep it all going at the expense of everyone else. Again, as the New York Times says, yeah, no, the American people don't want the wars or anything. But of course, you know, the experts know that it's got to be this way. Yeah, well, I'm not so sure of that. And in fact, you know, I'm a Jeffersonian in the sense that as, as long as we have this federal republic, the possibly not wisest, but still the best depository of the power is with the people. It's their sons who got to go get their legs blown off in this thing, you know, uh, not the people in the House and the Senate, not the people at the think tanks or, you know, the neoconservative magazines. They don't do the fighting. So if the parents of the infantry are over it, then it sounds to me like those are your orders, General, because this is the Amer this is America, the USA, where the people are in charge. And these people supposedly work for us rather than there are warlords. There are overlords and we're their subjects. Or talk I know I'm being naive, but I'm just being facetious, really, because I do know yeah. better. Yeah, talk, talk, talk about this ecosystem and it gets this. And let's let's talk to conservatives right now, because okay. conservatives are constitutional conservatives are rightly skeptical of and now we call it the deep state, but just, you know, government bureaucrats that can't be fired sure. and the inevitable. And, you know, Ronald Reagan said uh, something to the effect of that, you know, there's no such thing as a temporary government program. Right. And and it's sort of public choice 101. Uh, once you create a program, you you end up creating jobs and you create an ecosystem where um, there's all sorts of uh, corporate interests that that help fight that particular war, whatever it is. And, mm -hmm. and it creates an economy and everybody's got to keep their jobs and everybody's got to grow their income and all that sort of stuff. Um, that same uh, and I would call it government failure, but that same government failure specifically applies and most desperately perhaps applies to to those functions that conservatives think are legitimate like national defense and it's a, it's a divide between the generals and the troops it's a divide between um, congress and the people um, but that corporate aspect the lockheed martins of the world um, it strikes me that that's sort of the, the the rocket fuel no pun intended that keeps the whole system rolling yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, the generals and the admirals too. I mean, you know, getting an extra star, an extra thingy on your shoulder and access to a better golf course in Hawaii and, you know, a bigger pension, a better seat on a better board of directors when you retire, all these kinds of things are also absolutely huge. And in the, in, in the intelligence services too. Like, so to go back about, you know, conservatives are ready to hear this about the deep state a little bit. Well, why is that? It's because the FBI counterintelligence division and the CIA framed our most recent president for high treason with the Kremlin of all things. And they just framed him. They falsely accused him. They set up his people and trapped his people into perjury traps and all these things. They leaked a hundred fake stories to the media throughout. And for three years, they pretended that the president of the United States, well, for beginning, starting with the major party already nominated candidate for president of the United States, who they frame, then the president elect, then the president himself for three years through continued to insist to the American people that it was true that this guy was a traitor. And who was it that set him up? The FBI counterintelligence division and the CIA were the ones who did all the lying. 
So you talk about unaccountable bureaucrats who can't be fired. This is the Gestapo. This is the secret police. Now look, if J. Edgar Hoover is doing something horrible and wrong when he uses COINTELPRO against poor black activists in Oakland, then what does it mean when the FBI does that to the president of the United States of America? Just an outright frame up counterintelligence program hit job, like the, what they did. Well, what got us to this? What got us this? Go back, rewind. Again, we don't even need to bring in the Democrats on this. It was Ike Eisenhower. And we all learned this. This is the acceptable conspiracy theory. It's a shade of a conspiracy theory you're allowed to believe in because Ike Eisenhower said it. He was a five-star general. He was the commander of all Supreme Allied United Nations forces in Europe in World War II. And then he became the eight-year, uh, eight two-term president of the United States of America. And he was, you know, famously said, God help the next president trying to control the U.S. Army and what these guys want to do. And he gave his cross of iron speech where he said, don't think this is all free. Every battleship we make is a couple of schools we didn't build. Every missile we put together is people going hungry. And don't think there's not a trade-off here. Five-star general, president of the United States talking like this, Republican saying this. And then on his last day in power, he said, you know what? Sorry to leave you guys in the lurch like this, but there is essentially a new combination of power that has defeated the US Constitution, that has already subverted democracy, and it's too late for you to do anything about it. Good luck. And he called it was just the military industrial complex. Famously, he wanted to add congressional, but people would thought that he thought or his advisor, somebody said to him, eh, that sounds like a little bit too much, like you want a more supreme executive over the Congress, which isn't the argument, right? It's just the argument is that Congress is so corrupted by these arms dealers, it doesn't cost much to run a congressional campaign. We're talking about, you know, pennies on the dollar, not even. We're talking the slightest remainder on the checks they're cashing that they have to recycle into the system to put their congressmen back in power. And then nowadays things have gotten more sophisticated, of course, with all of the think tanks and all that. But, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations was founded by the Morgan Group in the first place and then was taken over by the Rockefellers. That was the first big think tank. And then from there, <laughs> let a thousand think tanks bloom. Right. And, you know, um, Andrew Coburn was so bright on this. I'm not sure if he's the first one to coin this or not. I think he is. He told me that, you know, the best way really to understand the neoconservative movement is it's the nexus between the new right military industrial complex and the Israel lobby in Washington, D.C., because the bankers and the oil men already had the Council on Foreign Relations to come up with all of their policies, basically, the, the waspy wasp for like 80 years straight or something. But the military industrial complex guys who are from California and Washington State and Texas and all this, they like making weapons and they talk tough but they need eggheads to come up with studies and policy papers and rationalizations for all the weapons that they're making. And the Israel lobby's full of eggheads. So they said, here's what we'll do. We'll just, you know, merge our power together. And so um, if you look at, uh, you know, all of the worst of the neoconservative institutes like the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, or they changed it to For America, now, um, but uh, the Center for Security Policy, the American Enterprise Institute, 
the, obviously back then the project for a new American century and the foreign policy initiative, the foundation for defensive democracies. All these guys are just, they're paid by Lockheed and Northrop Grumman. And it's all just a rationalization so that they can sell weapons to the US military, to the American taxpayer captive market. And it's just a racket, it's as simple as that. You know, it's, it's almost too old to invoke now. It doesn't have the punch that it should that it was Smedley Butler that said war is a racket. And he was, you know, a four-star general, most decorated officer of his era, a U.S. Marine Corps general. And he wasn't asking you, he was telling you. He was the authoritative documentarian of the thing because he was the commanding officer in charge for 25 years. Here's how we do it. Wall Street orders us into action. We kill people, we steal their property, and then we put somebody else in charge, and then we move somewhere else. That's not defending the United States of America, and that was a long time ago. That's back before the World Wars, you know? Um, but, uh, or I guess he wrote that after World War One. I, I guess. So uh, one thing, one thing that's, one thing that's always, I, I don't think there is a right or wrong answer to this question, but one thing I've always tried to figure out, you know, I, I was not a Trump supporter, but clearly, that that military industrial complex you're describing here was expecting that Hillary Clinton would take office and would be sort of the um, status quo, keep keep the keep the machine rolling forward. And so they they panicked about Donald Trump, who who actually ran uh, mostly as an anti-war candidate. Um, did did he believe that or was that just the guy who's a marketing genius seeing where the American people are? Because because he originally endorsed uh, the war in Iraq, um, but by the time he was on stage with Jeb Bush, he was he was the the, the strongest voice on that stage against it. Um, did did he believe that stuff? Well, I mean, it's a little bit hard to parse. I mean, first of all, by the time he's denouncing Iraq War II, everybody knows we shouldn't have done Iraq War II, and in fact, the major event of the Except campaign season. I'm sorry. Except Jeb Bush, of course. Yeah, except Jeb Bush. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the major, you know, advent in this narrative of the campaign season of 2015 and 16 was when he went to South Carolina and he said, you know, his brother lied us into war. It was a total disaster. We shouldn't have done it. And a veteran in the crowd was like, man, take back that they lied us into war, which he, I like the syllogism. I fought over there. Take back that they lied us into it. Like, really? Well, okay. That makes a lot of logical sense. And Trump did back down, but the, the, he said, oh, well, you know, maybe it was an accident or something, but in, he still said it. And then the next day he got two thirds of the vote and the other 17 candidates split the remaining third. And so that was it. And that was in South Carolina, the most heavily militarized state in the union with, I'm guessing very close to, if not the highest per capita, um, you know, veterans of the 21st century wars living in that state. And he said, he got up there and essentially said, listen, we all renounce the Bush's wars, don't we, everybody? And they said, yeah, we do. And he had to do that to defeat Jeb, to say, I mean, here was the obvious thing to hang around Jeb's neck, is you're George Bush's brother. Why would anybody listen to you, shove? And it worked, you know, because of course, and then Jeb, they asked, well, what about Iraq War II? And he goes, well, the Iraq war was a pretty good deal. Uh-huh. He hadn't practiced at all what he was going to say about this at all. He didn't even think anyone was going to ask him about Iraq war too, you know, and he was an exceptionally lousy candidate and the only one really standing in Trump's way 
And so that was a huge part of how he had to destroy him was by renouncing the Bush legacy. And and frankly, the Republican Party was never going to win again as long as they were running Rubio's and McCain's and Romney's who wanted to double Guantanamo and, you know, go after Iran next too and all that. The people are over it. The New York Times is right. The, in fact, as the polls show, the American people oppose say in answer to the question, should we have ever fought the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? The American people say no by about like 60 percent, 62. The veterans of the Iraq and Afghan wars, they say no at like 65, 67 percent ahead of the curve of the rest of the American people. So talk about thank you for your service. I respect you for your sacrifice. Well, they want to end the war. So how about that? And that's them speaking for themselves, too. I'm just reading the results. Yeah. And 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 veterans were a disproportionate part of the Ron Paul movement because because they actually understood in a very visceral way the cost of these social Absolutely. experiments. And in fact, in 2012, um, I'm not sure if this is true for 08, but in 2012, Ron Paul raised more money from active duty and military veterans than all the other candidates in the race combined, including Barack Obama on the other side. And, you know, so if, if dollars were votes and it was the veterans who chose, it was the anti-war Republican was the one that they wanted. What does that tell you? But now as far as Trump, no, we never meant it. Just like he, and you know, this is a talent. I don't know how great of a talent it is. I guess it's pretty good if you can get people to believe you. But he would say, listen, we have to cut social security. These deficits are out of control. It's irresponsible. I'm the greatest champion of social security in the whole world. You know, oh, I'm anti-war. These wars are terrible. You killed all these people and wasted all this money. We didn't even get anything out of it. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to kill their families. I'm going to torture them. I don't even care if we get good intelligence. They deserve to be tortured anyway. We're going to wage a war of annihilation. So if, you, if you're like a Republican and you lean a little Jeffersonian and Ron Paulian, then he's got something for you. You lead a little Jacksonian and the little macho tough guy, Southerner boy, he's got some of that for you too. And just whatever you need to hear, he said something a lot like what you think at least a couple of times. If you want to believe, there's something for you to believe in there. If you want to be a skeptic, then come on, man. The guys, boiled hot dogs are the best. No grilled. Whatever it is you want to hear at any given time. You don't care, you know? Yeah, yeah it's kind of a, Kind of a uh, either a caricature or a distillation of of what every single politician does. Um, but the one thing he figured out is that he could give everybody what they wanted. And um, apparently the human mind will sort of sort through that and and glom onto something that sort of makes you hopeful that maybe this time he will get us out of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And that was one more thing about that. One more yeah. thing about that is. And this goes to Trump's entire character is that he is really not one of them. I mean, and and to be one of them, you're supposed to be a senator or a governor or a vice president and so thoroughly vetted and a member of all the right groups and friends with all the right people and already in on the consensus. And he just wasn't. And, you know, I, I saw this great interview with uh, Al Sharpton in 2015. And he goes, listen, you people from out there in the country, you might not understand this. So let me explain this to you. Donald Trump is from New York. Donald Trump is from Queens. And that means to the guys in Manhattan, he's poor white trash scum and they hate him and they've always hated him. And all he ever wanted was to be liked by them. And so he hates them back because they never will accept him. And so, you know, he's a real estate tycoon, right? He's not really born, 
rich in a way. I mean, his father had made some money and whatever, but he was not like the son of famous, very like, uh, you know, skull and bones wealth from, from, uh, you know, the late 19th century or whatever. Um, and, uh, and he is so very uncouth and narcissistic and, and whatever. So he made his fortune mostly on TV rather even than in buying and selling buildings, you know, or, or much of it. Um, and so when he got to DC, it was like, if they were telling you, we need you to believe in America's mystical destiny to lead mankind. Can you do that for us? And you're like, well, I mean, no, I didn't believe in that yesterday, but you're telling me like, that's the prerequisite for the job of American president is I have to be like the crusading salesman for the American empire. Eh. And Donald Trump just does, all he wanted was for people to play hail to the chief. You know what I mean? He don't care about stuff like that. He doesn't really believe in anything at all. So now he's supposed to believe in America's mystical destiny to, and then anyone could think of this the same lines as him, as long as you get a chance to, as long as the argument is ever even brought up, you'll agree with him in an instant, him and Doug Bondo and every genius in America. Why are we defending Germany and Japan and South Korea? that are all extremely prosperous capitalist countries in many ways, you know, our commercial competitors or whatever, if you're an economic nationalist about it at all, why do we have these giant military garrisons there and spend all this extra money defending these countries from threats they don't even face? We got to browbeat the Germans into spending more money on their military when they don't have use for a military because they know the Russians aren't coming. There's no reason for a cold war. Otherwise, they'd be building up their tank forces right now, wouldn't they? They can't be bothered to. But then we got to insist, you got to buy more tanks, Germany. Why? Just because our guy, our government's run by tank salesmen. That's the only reason why. And so now tell Donald Trump that this is our mystical destiny to sell tanks to Germany. <laughs> and he's just not down for it. He doesn't believe in it. And then, you know, um, I think it was Dave Smith that pointed out that this was the real disgrace was when he went on the Bill O'Reilly show. And Bill O'Reilly said, yeah, but you want to get along with Russia, but Vladimir Putin's a murderer. And Trump goes, come on, you think we're so innocent? And to them, I mean, that's like saying the Pope is the devil and the whole religion's canceled. You just can't do that, you know? You can't do that. Be the president of the United States who goes around saying that, yes, our government is just as evil as any other government, maybe worse. Everybody knows that as long as you're not pretending it ain't, you know. And why is it, Matt, by the way, that Martin Luther King can say so and everybody can quote it and everybody knows it was true when he said it. America is the greatest purveyor. The U.S. government is the greatest purveyor of violence on the face of the earth. Who's second place? It's not even close. There's not even a contest. Who else is at war anywhere in the world but us? Where is there a war anywhere in the world that we're not in on? Even in the Congo, you got American corporate interests and mercenaries and CIA bribes and God knows what going on over there for three million killed in the last 20 years, you know? So give us a um, give us an overview. I mean, your, your chapter sort of methodically goes through each presidency, starting with Carter and and the various wars and and we we don't have time to get into it at all and and I suspect you want people to buy your book and read it but yeah that's okay but but start with Carter and give us give us an overview about how every administration builds on the next regardless if it's 
it's Democrats or Republicans and, yeah. and get us to where we are today. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, my mom joked at me. I made her read it as kind of like a, a proofreading job or whatever. And she liked it. She said it was a page turner. But she also joked that she was trying to keep track of how many times we changed sides. And she lost track of how many times we changed sides. But I would note that when we and you will note as you read the book that the side changing is not dependent on the American partisan administrations changing from Republican to Democrat and back again. The changes in policy always happen mid administration and the next government always picks up where they left off and don't change for another few years or whatever it is. So, for example, to skip ahead, but as one illustrative example, when Barack Obama was backing Al Qaeda in Syria for five years. That wasn't because he was a secret Muslim from Kenya who had, you know, his government had been infiltrated by the Muslim Brotherhood with Grover Norquist and all this like crazy Frank Gaffney stuff. It was had nothing to do with that. Barack Obama had picked up that exact same policy from George W. Bush. And all he was doing was carrying it forward. Now, if you look at it from a partisan lens, you're going, why is Obama doing this? But if you're just looking at it, from a non-interventionist lens, well, it's really easy to see why he's doing it. He's doing it for the same reason Bush did it, which was to try to make up for Bush's previous mistake in that case. Um, and so you see how it goes. The changes in the policy as we flip back and forth are not really dependent on the administration, but on the results of their screw-ups. So just, I, I can try to go super fast forward. How, how much time do we have here? We're doing uh, another? We've got about 15 more minutes. Oh, okay. So I'll do the super fast forward version here. And by the way, this is another thing. This isn't a secret history. It's just kind of an alternative history. So I'm not telling you about secret operations, something or other you never heard of that has all this like, you know, overwhelming detail about some kind of stuff. It's not like that. Everybody knows that that Ronald Reagan backed Saddam Hussein against Iran in the 1980s, right? I'm not blowing the lid off of that. I'm just trying to show you the through line of why it makes sense and, and how you're to understand that in reference to the Carter years and the Bush years that came after, et cetera, like that. So that's all it is. Um, but I think it really helps to clarify some things. Um, so what it is, is Carter's got three things. He's got the Iranian revolution, and then he's got his plan to deliberately bait the Soviets into invading Afghanistan in order to help bog them down and bleed them to bankruptcy. And then he has the reaction to that working, which is, uh-oh, the Soviets invade Afghanistan, they might go to Iran next. So then he declares the Carter Doctrine and says the Persian Gulf is an American lake. Soviet Union, don't you dare invade Iran or we'll go to war over it now. Even though we just lost Iran, we're afraid that Russia's gonna grab it. So they announced the Carter Doctrine, but that also means building up bases on the Arabian Peninsula and backing Saddam Hussein's invasion of Iran beginning at the beginning of 1980, okay? then. Ronald Reagan comes in, he continues these policies of the Carter Doctrine, building up the bases, supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which includes a bunch of Arab Afghans, not just Afghan Mujahideen, but the Arab Afghan army, they called it, of Muslims from all around the world, and especially the Middle East, who went to help them fight, including, of course, Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri and the later leaders of al-Qaeda. And then uh, continued to back Saddam Hussein against Iran to contain the Iranian revolution. Then, as we all know, there was a dispute over war debts at the end of the Iran-Iraq war and Iraq invaded Kuwait. And then America launched Iraq War I to force Iraq back out again. And somewhat known, kind of, it's not really secret history, but it's lesser known history, is the great uprising of the Shiites and the Kurds against Saddam Hussein after Iraq War I. 
And George Bush Sr. had encouraged that. But then he changed his mind. He stabbed them in the back and he let Saddam Hussein kill 100,000 of them to suppress the revolution. You remember the movie Three Kings with Marky Mark and Ice Cube and George Clooney? That's the, the setting of that movie is this attempted and then failed Shiite uprising is going on in the background. It was in the aftermath of Iraq War I. Just to try to clue people back in, you know, time back into where we're, what we're talking about here. But then, so why did Bush Sr. stab them in the back? He stabbed them in the back because Iraqis who'd taken Iran's side in the Iran-Iraq war that, that Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan had supported Saddam Hussein against Iran, they started coming across the border to lead the revolution. And these were the Reaganites. It was Bush Sr.'s government. These are the same Reaganites. And they realized, oh, wait a minute. We're now reversing our policy. We just spent eight years supporting Saddam Hussein to contain the Iranian revolution. Now we're importing it. Oops. And so they call it off and they let Saddam Hussein kill 100,000 people to suppress the insurrection. Then they said, oh, geez, now we have to stay in Saudi Arabia forever in order to patrol the no-fly zones to protect the people that we just encouraged to rise up and then stabbed in the back when the insurrection was already over. It's not like Saddam Hussein was going to keep killing them all forever or whatever. It was just a pretext. And then they use that to stay in Saudi Arabia to patrol the no-fly zones over Iraq. Then the Israelis insisted that, you know, now that you've weakened Iraq so much, they're not really in a very good position to contain Iran. So now we insist, America, you have to stay in Saudi and launch this policy of dual containment, the architect of which in the Clinton administration was Martin Indyk, who had previously been an employee of Yitzhak Shamir, the prime minister of Israel, who said, now we have to do this dual containment to contain Iraq and Iran both from Saudi Arabia. And this is what turned Osama bin Laden and the heroic Arab Afghan Mujahideen freedom fighters of the Afghan war in the 80s into the anti-American terrorists that they became. It was because bin Laden wasn't since the, the American forces were stationed in Saudi Arabia, supporting all the dictatorships in the region, suppressing the price of oil to subsidize our economy at their expense, and supporting Israel in their merciless oppression of the Palestinians and the Lebanese. And it's just as simple as that. They never once said that we're mad at you because of freedom. I mean, think about that. You know what really makes bin Laden mad is that in America, they have freedom of religion to such an extent that in a nation of 300 million people, they tolerate 300, I mean, pardon me, they tolerate 3 million Muslims living among them in peace with zero pogroms against them ever, unless you count John Ashcroft right after September 11th, rounding up some people, but that wasn't really us, was it? Um, but in America, where it's a supermajority Christian population within Jews and Buddhists and people of all different descriptions, and Muslims are just one of many uh, religious minorities in our country and are not oppressed as Muslims as such at all. Ooh, that makes Bin Laden mad, how free Muslims are in America. Oh, freedom. How angry, you know, that must drive a terrorist. Of course, that wasn't what it was. It was American foreign policy in the Middle East. And just as Ron Paul warned all through the 1980s, we're putting American civilians at risk with these policies. And just as he put it to Rudy Giuliani in 2007, if we think we can go around the world and doing what we want without facing the repercussions from that, that we do that, and he's speaking we as uh, the government, as, as a member of the House of Representatives, that we do that at our own peril, at the American people's peril, because that's not true. People will fight back, and that's just the fact. So now here's the thing. They weren't just mad and wanted to crash into some things and kill some people because, rah, 
they did it because they were trying to provoke an overreaction. It wasn't just revenge. It was a deliberate strategy to turn America stupid and to exploit essentially our party in power's cynical, uh, you know, obviously, you know, knee jerk response to take full advantage of a terrorist attack against this country to go ahead and launch bonus wars if they could. We're not just going to Afghanistan. We're going to Somalia immediately and we're going to Iraq in two years. And, and, and as George Bush said, oh, you know what? There's al-Qaeda terrorists in 60 countries. There's no limit to this thing. Meanwhile, in the truth was there were 400 al-Qaeda guys hiding in Afghanistan. This was not a mass movement. This was a small kind of special forces cadre that was being put together to essentially figure out how to get America to do all their dirty work for them. I tell the story in the book of John Miller, who was the ABC News reporter, who had interviewed bin Laden. He later became an FBI agent. And he interviewed bin Laden in 1998. And bin Laden said, look, I declare war against you and the Jews and the Europeans and everybody, and I'm coming for you. What are you gonna do about that? And John Miller, he later told Peter Bergen that internally he was chuckling and scoffing to himself that, yeah, you and what army, pal? You know, you and your 400 friends hiding in exile, freezing in exile on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan in the Nangarhar, you know, White Mountains. You're going to take on the American superpower, huh? Give me a break. You know, what am I even doing here? This is stupid, right? But the whole thing was all you needed was 20 guys to crash four planes and get America to do all the rest of it for him. As his son told Rolling Stone magazine, his son, his non-terrorist son, Omar, not Hamza, the bad guy, uh, his non-terrorist son, Omar, told Rolling Stone in 2010, my father was rooting for George W. Bush in the year 2000. He thought this is a guy who will attack and break the bank and break the country. So he didn't say, oh, no, tough guy, cowboy, fake macho Texan going to come and get me. We better not make him angry. He thought, oh, good. The perfect mark, this fake macho tough guy, you know, never been a fist fight in his life from Texas is going to, you know, with all of his corporate connections or whatever. This is a guy who will exploit the crisis. I'm going to hand him on a silver platter for the exact same reason that Zbigniew Brzezinski proposed to Jimmy Carter in 1979 that America should back the Mujahideen against the Soviet-backed government in Kabul to provoke the Russians into invading Afghanistan, to bog them down, to give them their own Vietnam, as uh, Robert Gates so Benny Brzezinski and Walter Slocum all put it back at the time, you know, when they were launching this program and all bin Laden did was say, I'm going to do that to you too. The same thing again and in the same place and you're going to fall for it. And then, so what was Bush going to do? Ah, this is all my dad's fault. Everybody knows that, you know, this is all because of my new stepbrother, Bill Clinton, who of course, you know, Bush senior famously adopted as a stepson, basically right after losing to him within a year, they're like golfing together and the best of friends and all this stuff. And, you know, so, um, oh yeah, no, they, yeah, you know what it is? They hate us for our innocence. The better we are, the more they hate us. And so there's no one to negotiate with because there's no reason here. And there's, you know, nothing to do except to declare war against not even Al Qaeda, not even terrorism, but terror. Your presumed reaction to terrorism. We got to wipe that off the face of the earth, terror. And so blank check, beyond, you know, a thousand Gulf of Tonkins passed at once for Bush to do whatever he wanted. And then, and that's what he did. 
And then, so here's the thing. I'm going on too long about this, but we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. That's all he ever wanted. Okay. But then Michael Scheuer, who's now crazy, but used to say important things about this back in the Bush years, um, said that when Bush went to Iraq, this is the former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit, said when Bush went to Iraq, this was the hoped for but unexpected gift to bin Laden. You know, now you're moving the whole fight a thousand miles west into Mesopotamia and you're getting rid of the French beret wearing socialist infidel with the clean shaven chin, Saddam Hussein, who only worshipped himself and turning a secular society into a sectarian hellscape. And which is all furthers bin Laden's goals of destabilizing the region, radicalizing everybody's politics and religious beliefs and every other thing. Well, if that's true, and it is obviously, then what do you say about knocking off Muammar Gaddafi in favor of the Libyan Islamic fighting group and Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb or waging a half a regime change against Bashar al-Assad in favor of Al Qaeda in Iraq, in Syria that killed 500,000 people? and led to the rise of the Islamic State and then Iraq War III to destroy it again. I mean, this is Osama bin Laden DMT trip come true, beyond the wildest dreams of Al-Qaeda winning every lottery in the world at the same damn time. And that last count, there's something like 40,000 hardcore real bin Ladenite fighters in the world, where we started with 400 20 years ago. And this is all just because of Bush and Obama. You remember, Matt, in, um, in the Bush years, Glenn Beck and all the Hawks would say, oh, it's the Islamo-fascist caliphate, right? Remember um, uh, Frank Gaffney? Oh, the Islamo-fascist caliphate. But then you spin a globe around and you go, well, where is it? Right? It's like the lost continent of Atlantis out you know, floating in the middle of the ocean or in the sky somewhere or something. There are nation states in the way of your caliphate. They're ruled by political parties. They have sovereign borders. Where's the caliphate? Well, George W. Bush gave them Western Iraq and Barack Obama gave them Eastern Syria. And they literally turned it into a bin Ladenite caliphate where that guy, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi up there on the uh, balcony declaring himself the caliph was no different than bin Laden. That might as well have been bin Laden's nephew up there. Same difference up there declaring himself the caliph Ibrahim in the name of God and ruling for three years. It was the USA that did all of that. Simple as that. So I'm, what's can you put a number on on the war on terror? Like how much have we spent since Carter? And I realize it's trillions, but give give people a sense for how this is bankrupting our country. Mm -hmm. So um, now just since September 11th and, and this century, it's been approximately seven trillion dollars. Um, there's some overlap here with my statistics because I cite a study in the book where um, uh, it was a economic, a geographic economist from Princeton had done this in-depth study um, where premise one was, we don't need to secure the oil over there. It's all been a waste. The oil supply was never really threatened in the first place. So this is all a big bust. And then he went and calculated it, and he said that from 76 through 2007, so a little bit, six years overlap here with my two statistics here, but from 76 to 2007, that we had spent $7 trillion that we didn't need to spend securing oil resources in the Middle East that were never really threatened in the first place. $7 trillion pissed away there, and then another six or seven since then. And so, sounds about right to me. Trillion here, trillion there. You know, it's today, uh, we won't run this show for a couple of days, but today happens to be President's Day. 
And, and I'm thinking about George Washington warning us in our farewell address. He, he, he famously, and libertarians love to quote this all the time, warned us against entangling alliances. And, and the way I think about foreign policy is, is not so dissimilar from that because they had a very practical argument, is, which is um, entangling alliances will cost too much and we're, we're young and we're poor and we, we can't afford to do that. So he, he worried about the national debt, which is, it's kind of a public choice argument. Um, but he also basically said, we don't know enough. And, and thinking about the unintended consequences of regime change, um, things always get worse. You know, you take out a bad guy and a more bad, bad guy takes over. Um, is that a mistake or is it by design? You know, it's mostly conspiracy of interests, right? I mean, at times, yes, you'll have a secret deal between a State Department guy and a CIA guy to screw up a peace deal so that a conflict could last. Unprovable little things like that throughout, you know, those are the the real conspiracies. But overall, it's a lot of people making a living off of doing the same thing and working together and doing it and telling each other how justified they are in doing it all. And as I learned on, I hope, the first day of psychiatry class at junior college when uh, in 1996 or whatever it was, that uh, attitude follows behavior. And so, you know, mostly people are interested in justifying what they've already done rather than coming up with reasons to do the things that and then decide what to do based on the reasons. You know, it really almost always works backwards. And so you got a lot of people who are extremely vested in saying that, listen, the reason I'm a warrior is because I have to be. And the reason I sell these missiles to the government is because they have to buy them. And the reason I buy these missiles from that company is because, boy, we sure need them. Otherwise, what would we even be doing here? You know, and yeah. it is all justified. Also, part of it is because it's a democracy. We all learn in social studies in elementary school that the grownups talk about what how things should be and figure out like what the truth is and what we should do. And then they vote for the very best people in their communities to make the decisions. And then those people make the best decisions that they can make. And so history has to be the way it is. Otherwise it wouldn't have been this way. And so there's such, there's a, such a strong built in legitimacy to all of this, you know, where on the other hand, I think this is why people always use that red blue, uh, Probably it'd be better if I could speak English. That uh, red pill, blue pill analogy kind of thing, though, too, is that you could just snap out of it and stop believing in this stuff and realize it's actually kind of stupid. Yeah. I mean, that was what Ron Paul did that was so important in 07 and 08, right? Was he said, listen, he didn't ever say this, but it was implicit in his whole presentation was you may have been under the impression that you have to be a hippie to be anti-war, that you have to wear, you know, Janis Joplin glasses and pal around with Jane Fonda and Michael Moore, or, you know, some horror show like him. Uh, no, not at all. Look at me. I stepped right out of the George W. Bush cloning machine, right? Southern German stock Methodist, Texas Republican congressman. And looks just like Bush from like 2,000 yards away or, or 200 yards away. I mean, you know what I mean? He's essentially the same, I, the same cookie cutter of the identity and saying, oh yeah, no, you don't have to believe in this crap. In fact, you'd be a fool too. You know, this isn't right. You don't, this isn't right at all. And people were like relieved. Oh, that's all it is. 
They just needed to hear it from somebody that they could respect that. Oh yeah. Were you feeling peer pressure? Did you feel like only hippies were against this stuff? And as long as you're not a hippie, you gotta be for it. Well, that just ain't so. And millions of people took them up on it in an instant. Simple as that. You know what? I didn't really believe George Bush. I just didn't have anybody better to tell me better, but now I do, you know? Yeah. And it's like the, uh, the Ron Paul revolution, which was in a sense, very lonely, certainly inside Washington, DC. Um, I see a growing voice in, in both parties, but more importantly, outside the party that are looking at this as, as us versus them in terms of the Washington machine versus the rest of us. And I, you know, I particularly enjoy the way that Tulsi Gabbard frames this stuff. And she's, she's hardly a, a libertarian. And I, the only, the only solution this, you know, this, we could end this show on a very dark note, but I'm going to try to bring it around to something positive. I, I think a lot of the, the partisan clash and the, the, the red pilling and all that stuff, I think it's an opportunity because people have the means to figure this stuff out for themselves. And, and your book is a nice um, distillation of, of a lot of stuff that can get, get pretty confusing. There's so many facts in these stories. Um, I really wanted to, to bring that to people because you have to understand what's going on in order to push back. And I, I'm still romantic enough to believe that uh, public opinion and informs people are the really the only solution to this problem. I, I don't, th I don't think the machine's going to reform itself. I don't think that, uh, you know, Tulsi Gabbard was pretty much pushed out of the democratic party. Uh, Ron Paul was completely disenfranchised at the 2012 convention and, and it just goes on and on like that. It's, it's gotta be outside. It's gotta be upstream of politics, I think. And, and I'm, I I'm hopeful because I have to be because this is unsustainable. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And you know what, look on foreign policy, especially there's real reason for optimism here. The people are with us. It's just not their priority right now. But as I said, we're talking super majorities of the American population are over it and led by the troops. We got great groups of anti-war veterans now, like bringourtroopshome.us and concerned veterans of America, and of course, veterans for peace and all the guys on the left-leaning side too. And they just set such a great example. All we need is a little bit of prominent leadership, you know, that can get TV time and that kind of thing to kind of galvanize the support. But, you know, the, really the reason I wrote this book is I want to, you know, Fool's Air in my book about Afghanistan, it was a pretty big hit in the libertarian movement. And I guess, you know, somewhat in the anti-war movement. And that was nice. Um, but with this book, I really want to get it out to the American people at large. Like I'm going to waste, I'm going to spend as much money as I can possibly spend on sending wholesale copies of this book for free to people who I think can help influence anything. Every AM host in America any like, I don't know, movie star, or pop star who has important opinions at all other than just garbage, you know what I mean? Or just whatever I can do. I really want this out there because I want people to have this conversation that starts even, you know, this is a marginal thing, but that's all I can do. Right. But if I can on the margin, I can have people talking about, you know, there's this new book out that says that it doesn't have to be this way and we could just quit this now and it'd be fine. That's all I want. I want people telling each other, there's this new book out that says, we don't have to believe in this crap. It's just not true. 
read it. It's easy. I really want it to be 150 pages. So there's like no way you could refuse to read it, but it turned out to be 300 anyway. Sorry. But, um, but it should be quick and easy. You know, it's supposed to be a page turner. My last book had 1300 citations in it. This has none. It's just whatever I could embed in the text. Otherwise, just trust me or don't, but I'm just telling you a story. You can Google every claim I make and they're easy enough. Um, but I wrote it to try to be as readable as possible, not just for you, but for your friend and your friend's uncle Bob and the lady down at the Walgreens and everybody to understand this stuff, you know, yeah. and, and get over it. Yep. It, enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism by Scott Horton. Scott, where can people find you and the stuff that you're doing so that they can dig into this if they're, if they're interested? Okay. So that's a long answer coming up here. Uh, first of all, I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com and I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, which by the way, our big fun drive kicked off today. That's me and the heroic and legendary Sheldon Richmond and also uh, the rising libertarian firebrand Pete Quinones and the great uh, Kyle Anzalone and a lot of other great writers and podcasters there, libertarianinstitute.org. Oh, and a bunch of great books. My three books, plus two of Sheldon's and one of the great William Norman Grigg, his posthumous book, No Quarter, um, and uh, more great books coming out this year, libertarianinstitute.org there. And then I've got 5,400 and something interviews for you going back to 2003 at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And at the latter there, we have a brand new video series. It's a video adaptation of the new book, Enough Already. And it also has 14 chapters. And it's me going through all the wars from Jimmy Carter all the way through. And so far, we're up through chapter nine out of 14 right now, uh, which was Somalia is the last one. And um, so, so far, they seem to be getting a pretty good response. And uh, so people can look at that, see what they think of it. There's a playlist there at uh, uh, youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. And then I'm on the radio in Los Angeles every Sunday morning on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., and uh, I think that's it. Cool. I, I discovered the video series. I, I think that's genius to to translate them into shorter consumable videos because our theory for the people, which seems to be borne out by experimentation and data, is that young people love to to binge watch things on on Netflix and things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. So that and we'll do our part to to share the videos and and I'll. I'll put this uh, link to your to your new book out there, and I really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you very much for having me, Matt. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? That's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people. 